fundamentally it's getting the right message in front of the right audience and, and finding that right channel that resonates for that specific audience. So different B2B businesses we operate with, they have different personas and live in different channels. So we need to approach them. Some of them are like on Twitter. Some of them are very active in YouTube. Right? So it's more like honing in into the right real estate rather than being as broad and shooting across everything, hoping to hit something, which is quite common, a non-strategy strategy. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Oren Greenberg. He's the founder and CEO of Curve. So he's got a digital agency, but he also works with a number of clients as a fractional chief marketing officer, CMO. Sometimes the team doesn't exist and he's going in and looking at routes to market, building a team, putting together a tech stack, looking at their content strategy. Other times he's displacing a team that's been dysfunctional. You'll find it interesting later on in the show when he says what percentage of the time as an expert, they get it absolutely right and nail it. I was surprised. I thought, I thought that's quite a low number. But if you're a CEO listening to this, maybe your marketing department is doing way better than you thought it was. He's also one of the top 1% of marketing experts in the world on TikTok. He's investing heavily in his platform there as a learning experiment. It sounds absolutely exhausting. He'd just come on the show after doing 90 minutes of video work to get three 21-second clips for TikTok. No wonder he was exhausted at the beginning of the show. He's speaking to us from Shoreditch today, and we're going to chat about has it got easier to put a team together now that people have been laid off in the tech world in the UK and the US. I'm going to talk about where should you spend your money on distribution or content. We talk a little bit about account-based marketing and do you have a business and scale and size and audience type to make it be interesting to look at that. We talk a bit about tech stack, not too much. And we talk about what do you need to do to win? And we get some recommendations off him at the end. Some great books on the subject. Fantastic conversation. I really enjoy talking to Oren. I'm sure you'll enjoy it too. Great. So I'm Oren. I operate as a fractional CMO. And I'm also the CEO and founder of Curve, which is a hybrid marketing consultancy and agency. We primarily work with scale-ups in Europe. Mostly on the performance uh -huh. marketing side of things. Some pretty cool clients. 
And that's um, mostly based uh, of Shoreditch, which is where I tend to do most of my meetings and work from. And what, what types of problems are you solving as a fractional CMO? Fundamentally, I'd say it's like team first. So building really great teams, then deploying the marketing budget on the tech stack, the channels, the creative, the analysis. So really making sure we've got the right message in front of the right audience and building awareness for the brands. Generally building the sales pipeline. So generating the sales qualified leads from B2B. Or if it's on the B2C, then e-commerce. It's um, all, all the way kind of strategy. So positioning, branding, how to become a category leader and really t- strong tie into the other C-suite execs, you know, the financial deployment with the CFO, the product with the CPO, I guess the brand narrative with the CEO, um, the, the, the engine and the deployment with the CFO. So making sure we've got that flexibility and nimbleness to deploy funds. But yeah, I'd say like if I was to rank it, I'd say uh-huh. building the right team is, is by far critically important really cracking the audience and the message and the channels and then the tech stack and making that all work together and kind of end to end all the way from business objectives and the translation of that down into marketing and then how that interconnects to the product and the other teams, engineering sales. You're coming in and I guess engineering yourself out. No, no. you don't, you companies continue to run with you as their fractional CMO yeah, I think at one point when they re- reach success and an inflection point of growth, then I moved to a more of an advisory position. And fundamentally what happened was I cracked growth because it's, it's fundamentally about trust. And the biggest problem people have is there's a lot of people who just don't really know what they're doing. So then you get someone who comes in. Initially, it's always a bit ropey because if they've not worked with me before, even though a lot of the clients, people I've worked with over the last 20 years, and then we drive the growth, got the result. And then they're like, well, okay, we don't really want you to leave. You've contributed and built the engine. So then it moves into some sort of advisory retainer. But yeah, at one point you can't, you outgrow a fractional CMO. That as a function, yes. But in terms of the relationship, if you deliver value, people are going to hang you, going to keep you around. Okay. And so what sort of size businesses are you going into then? These are well-funded, got past MVP, or are you working with people whilst they're still trying to work out what they're doing? It's very atypical for MVP. I do some mentoring more on the kind of seed level. Okay. But typically, I'd say post A. I'd say A to B is probably the sweet spot. But I have done work for five FTSE 100 companies now. So they bring me in on specialized projects or innovation projects that they have to lead. But obviously, I'm not reporting to the C-suite of a FTSE 100. They're reporting to probably three, four, sometimes even five layers down. Um yeah, I was recently in an organization, I think 50,000 employees. So it's not always scale-ups. But I, because I do consultancy, and then I do the fractional CMO. So I'm quite diverse as a portfolio worker. And I'm probably a bit atypical in that way. Okay. But you're solving similar challenges in those FTSE 100 businesses? So it's a growth challenge? Fundamentally, it's all the same principles. But the day-to-day is actually very different because of the political complexities that corporates have which scale-ups don't suffer from they have very different problems and challenges if i was to sum it up i'd say the biggest problem for corporates is internal coordination 
And I'd say for scale-ups, it's resource limitation. Uh-huh. So they they just they don't have the same challenges, but that's why the scale-ups are so much more agile. It's not only that, they also tend to be a lot more ambitious. You know, like I don't really get scale-ups. I'm sorry, the corporates, I don't really get emails at 3 a.m. from them, <laughs> but from the founders of scale-ups, I do get emails at 3 a.m. And they do work. Okay. When they say, I work you know, 20 hour days, 16 hour days, they're not, it's not hyperbole. They are actually working that. They are killing it. Very rarely I've ever met someone in a corporate setting that's like applying themselves to that level. Um, so it's, it's like a different culture. It's not just uh, the deployment, but fundamentally, we've got an audience, got a message, need to get it out, need to get them into product, need to get traction, need to get sales. The, the principles are the same, the same channels. Like I, I you know, still use LinkedIn for company A and company B. But uh, for the corporate, it took three and a half months to sign off that campaign. With a scale-up, it took you know, three and a half hours to sign off that campaign. So the agility, the speed, the culture is different. So I, w- I wouldn't say they're the same. I'd say they are markedly different. And do you, do you get a different level of joy or satisfaction working with scale-ups versus corporates? I make, I make this joke where if I work with um, too many corporates, I get too bored. And if I work with too many scale-ups, I get too burnt out. Right. So, yeah, I kind of, I need the mix of the two. So I like mixing it up. But then some of the corporates, that, like the projects, when it's an external, when it's a project that they've incubated as a limited company that's a separate entity, it acts like a startup. And that's really exciting and interesting. And I've only had one of the five that were like that. The other... It was too slow for my liking for a lot, a big part of it. Like the, the meetings and meetings, and so I really wanted to just move, get get a result, move things forward. Um, but there was a lot of complexity. But they have a lot of advantages. They have the brand. They can afford the specialist talent. They can deploy more effectively. Yeah, but a lot of the a lot of the corporate projects I've been involved with haven't they haven't survived. So it's like it's very um, whimsical. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, like one of them, they just went, yeah, no, I mean, I could keep pumping in two, three mil a year into into you, or I could just go buy the other business for 50 mil. Yeah, so I'll just go do that. Bye. And they just went, bought another business for 50 mil. And, and because for them, the growth rate that they need to add to their P&L, they, they're dealing with very large numbers. So they need to deploy serious levels of capital to, to move the dial. And the startup growth rate, even if you put fuel on it, unless it's growing at Instagram rate or TikTok rate or Facebook rate, which is, I mean, people just don't understand. There's like only 1,500 unicorns in the world. And there's like, I don't know how many businesses, hundreds of millions of businesses. So the probability of being able to scale and, and crack that is really, really rare. It's really hard. And they don't give it enough time because the vision doesn't really tend to be at the C-suite level in the corporate. It's usually a project that someone who's very passionate about scale-ups is driving and they're like multiple levels down. They tend to be younger. They tend to be very innovative and they're, they're up against it internally to try and convince people why they should be putting all this money in innovation. But then um, if you haven't put the money into innovation and someone catches up, you, it's usually too late. You've already missed the boat. So I think some of them really get it and they're, they're, they, have the, they have the resources and the mentality. Others... Not so much. They're lagging. Maybe because competitive forces are too intense. You know, a lot of the corporates, their core products or core businesses have suffered because of innovation. Or like competing entities have derailed them. So then for them to invest in innovation when their core business is shrinking at such a rapid rate, you have thousands or tens of thousands of employees, 
going and investing money into a, a radical startup, which is massively high risk, is not the, your first port of call. It's not what you think about when you think about, you know, I'm losing this business. That's like the core. I need to figure something out about that. They don't have the attention. Often I think that you've got innovation and efficiency on the same continuum. And you can either do one or the other, but you can't do both. And so if you're a large corporate, then you tend by the very nature of the organization to be focused on efficiency, which means you're just going to be rubbish at innovation. Unless, as you say, you do it, you do it outside. Yeah. I think that spectrum, that spectrum is accurate. And there's another quality to corporates, which is QA. So their quality assurance, they have so much more to lose. Like when you make a mistake as a big brand, that's super costly. When you're a scale-up with an unknown brand and you make a mistake, well, its implication in the market is negligible. So you see the, it's a level of due diligence that is so rigorous. And yeah, is that part of what slows down efficiency? Yes, but it's not just the, the work streams or the effectiveness of the QA methodology. It's the mindset. It's the risk appetite culturally is what really distinguishes them. Yeah. Okay. And in the marketplace today, I mean, do you see an economic downturn or are all your clients still firing on all cylinders? I'd say it's, um, it's actually all three categories. So some of them are like, oh, recession, who cares? And they, they just, they did the maths and they realized that actually they've raised so much money that if they don't deploy their capital, they're not going to reach anywhere. And like trying to be conservative is not going to work. Others, they're kind of floating through it. So it's kind of like not, not really up or down. And then others, they haven't managed to secure funding. So then very tricky positions where they're, some of them are changing monetization models. Some of them have crazy team restructuring going on. Some of them are really under the gun. So we see like all three types because we have quite a few different clients. And they, the ones that are still going for it, are they, you're able to continue to get results for them at the moment? They tend to be businesses that aren't as susceptible to the nature of what's changing in the economy. There's types of businesses that are more resilient. And what sectors are those? Are you got a sense of what sectors are currently resilient? I'd say it's across B2B and B2C. So I wouldn't, yeah. I don't think it's really sector specific as much as it's proposition specific. Okay. So it's not like, yeah, it's not like energy, this, and, and you know, mobility is that. I, I just think it's the, their proposition of where they are in the market especially if they're category leader, they, they just have, they're more sticky. Okay. And so what, uh, if you're thinking about giving some advice to business leaders listening to this, what should people be thinking of doing? Yeah, I think there's two schools of thought here. The first thought of school is if you cut down on your marketing spend, then you're not going to be around after this kind of phase because competitors have outtaken you. And, you know, a lot of advice now is, is focused on, on high ROI channels. The problem is, and you see this a lot of the data supporting people shift into Google ads. And the problem is that's capturing demand, but doesn't create awareness and doesn't create demand. Mm -hmm. And this stuff is very hard to measure. So once you start reducing this budget and put more money into here, you kind of very quickly deplete that. And then you're like, well, what happened? What, was it a recession? Or so you're not clear on what happened there. That's a very typical pattern. So I think the businesses need to find the balance between demand creation and, and tapping into that existing demand in the market. And I think that's very, there is no generic advice there. It's for that business in that sector, according to what's happening in their space. And they need to adjust those two. But I definitely wouldn't recommend just switching it off and focusing Google ads because 
you don't need to be in a high growth trajectory like you could have done that before there's a, it doesn't it's not it's not how marketing works you have to grow awareness there's a funnel you have to take people through the journey so that would be my first thing i think the second is really a shift in messaging so people are for that specific company if their persona type is more conservative then you shift from you know we help you make money to we help you save money so you start to highlight the features and benefits that are specific to a more conservative mindset you shift the narrative with the same offer to cater to the mindset shift but once again not everyone's experiencing that same mindset shift mm -hmm. so you need to not just do that out like you know shooting from the hip and the best way to do that is customer interviews you know talk to the customers engage with them ask them these questions and then if they say yeah you know we're conservative we're worried about our budgets then you know that categorically it's kind of a narrative shift you need to focus on and i'm not saying this like superficially change your marketing messages i mean change your strategy change your product offering change your persona type you know shift the problems you're solving as an organization if that's what's happening not just change the message on the landing page and hope that's going to resolve your problem not superficial tack but like a meaningful strategic shift yeah and that at the top of the funnel that awareness what um what in the sort of b2b space what what sort of tools or campaigns are you running at the moment that you see are being effective yeah i think by order it's kind of paid search paid social paid search when there's demand and then you kind of scrap it if there isn't and then display programmatic is kind of in there as well in account-based marketing b2b strategies i guess there's a lot of plg is very popular at the moment product-led growth so really building the vibe but there's, there's a little misconceptions about plg it's very popularized but it's not right for a lot of SaaS businesses because if they don't have built-in marketplaces of virality then it doesn't really work so well this referral engine if you don't have enough volume as well so but that's quite popular a lot of people are kind of thinking and doing that and um, really depends on the persona type um, if it's like a more exclusive persona that's higher to reach than like a little typical stuff that's more high touch ex exclusive events etc still perform direct mail etc if it's more mid and lower then digital marketing still performs well but yeah social selling works well but fundamentally it's getting the right message in front of the right audience and, and finding that right channel that resonates for that specific audience so different b2b businesses we operate with they have different personas and live in different channels so we need to approach them. Some of them are like on Twitter. Um, we did an analysis the other day. Some of them were very active on YouTube. Right? So it's more like honing in into the right real estate rather than being as broad and shooting across everything, hoping to hit something, which is quite common, a non-strategy non -strategy strategy. When you start working with people, how well do they, does anybody have a persona? Or is that part of the tool bag that you bring with you? Some do, some don't. It's very variable. So some businesses... Um, they've gone thoroughly gone into it some of them have we had one the other day where he had they had outdated personas and the messaging wasn't performing because the personas hadn't adapted to what's happening in the industry which was massive change so that that was outdated and therefore you know, the money they were deploying was ineffective and on a lot of the paid ad command they didn't understand why why are we spending so much money it's not performing anymore and they didn't realize that the mentality of who they're selling to has shifted there as a business had matured so that's quite see that sometimes what's the methodology that you like to use to create personas it's always customer research it's always qualitative interviews uh-huh to find out what problem they're coming to you to solve or could come to you to solve everything who are the competitors that you perceive in the space what are the pain points that you perceive 
what is the language that they're using that then gets used in the messaging? What is the alternative that you had before you considered this op- option? What do you like the most about this product? What is the your journey and discovery process for how you came across to use this product? So you really try that you're understanding like all, all of the insight you look for in marketing is fundamentally in the client's mind. You just need to figure out how to extract it and package it. I find that's something that relatively few companies do with any rigor. We have someone who just does that. She specializes in that. She's very good at it. And it's literally her bread and butter. So she does day in, day out. She's just a special. I mean, she does a part of positioning, but effectively it's like messaging, positioning, and market research is kind of this trifecta. Would you take a client on if they weren't if they wouldn't let you do that? Is it so fundamental to how you spend the client's money that we had a client the other day and what he wanted to do was do it himself. Uh-huh. Which put us put us in an interesting position where I mean Nina, she she decided to she liked the client. She liked the shape of the challenge, so she decided to support them in that process. So Okay. That was interesting to see that she took that on. So she, I think it's subjective, but I'd say it depends on the challenge because we we have different partners who specialize in different areas, and sometimes it's very clear what that that service we can deliver is that adds value. So, like if we're doing Google Ads or we're doing content strategy, or we're doing an account based marketing strategy, or we're doing Facebook ads or you know mobile apps, whatever it is, if we can deliver value there because we audited it and it's currently being done really poorly. And that company or person, if that's a CMO or marketing director or CEO, who doesn't feel they want to go that deep because they feel they've either done it or they understand it or, you know, they're not convinced by it. Sometimes I talk to people and they just don't, I had this the other day, I had this here. They just, they just didn't believe in it. They're just like, I don't want to spend the money on this. I'm like, why? I just don't see the value. I'm like, okay, well, this is the value. Yeah, no, no, it's not that I don't understand the value. I just don't believe that's true. But, you know, it's like a foundational, it's a foundational piece of the work that we do. I know I get it. I just don't understand the benefit of doing it. Or why do I have to spend all this money to do this? And it, and this is a, like, a very smart person, but fundamentally, they're just like this is just very amorphous and very um, very non concrete. And I totally understand why. And when you see a lot of the output of the work, you're like, is this conjecture? Is this subjective? Is this correct? And I think that's the biggest problem with why people like quant and why business as a whole is very quant heavy now. And you see a lot of like data led insights, but qual. And it's not like one. It's not like one is better than the, than the other. It's not like flossing versus brushing teeth. And I think having the argument which one, <laughs> which one is better for you, and which should you do? And this doctor said this, and this doctor said this. And I, why don't you just do both? Like do qual and do quant, and you'll really get a nice, full, rich picture. I mean, or, or more importantly, can you afford not to? Like in your strategy, can you afford to take the risk of not doing this properly? So. I mean, yeah, sometimes it's education. You need to educate. But it comes back to trust. Like I mentioned before, it takes time to build trust. It takes time to build connection. And then there's also how did that person find us? Because like, if people come through my referral network or they come across me, you know, through my, my activity on social or they've been following me for a while, their willingness to change their mind or shift their thinking to effectively have the humility to say, look, I've been an engineer for 20 years. You've been a CMO for 20 years. You probably know a thing or two about marketing more than I do. And I have the and they have the humility to recognize that. You know, it's not that people aren't humble, actually. That's maybe a bit a bit a bit reductionist. I think people are getting so many different opinions from people in their network, from advisors, from board members, from other CMO, you know, from like other marketers that they know, that they can't discern what's true or not. And 
some of that is right and some of that is wrong and they don't know the difference and they get overwhelmed and it's very hard to then decide who to go with and who to trust and i think that's the problem now is this this ability to tap into all the the knowledge of the internet has left people bewildered and overwhelmed and the reason is because they can't do that across 12 things at the same time you can't really figure out marketing and figure out everything else but also a lot of the content you're consuming is generic you're reading a blog post like even if you go to my blog post even if you consume my social content it's generic like i'm you know expressing what i know but doesn't mean it's right for you and a lot of people i see action my advice without even getting personalized recommendation and that's actually dangerous but what am I going to do every time I, I, I put a post I caveat? You should not, you know, you should do this at your own risk. I mean, you know, common sense. But everyone wants to do it on their own risk. It's really amazing. I mean, I think it's amazing that people like are willing to go and learn. I think it's once they realize they burn a lot of the marketing budget and doing the wrong stuff that they realize that learning the company was only happy to pay for their learning curve to a certain degree. And then they're really under the gun. And usually they've come to us after lots of bad experiences. And it's not like, you know, we always blow it out of the park either you know we make mistakes and we screw up so i'm like you know we're human after all so i'm not like pretending as if we're the be all and end all of it it just tends to be that in terms of probability we have a higher probability of succeeding than someone who doesn't have as much experience or knowledge because we have specialists who do that function day in day out so that's where i think it's it's important to to go to your specialist brain surgeon not to go to your gp when you have a, a brain tumor you know you've got to go for the right the, the right depth or think you'll get a black and decker out and do it yourself. It's very, very, you can very try. ambitious. You can try. Um, the <laughs> thinking about the tech stack, you know, you talked about, you know, let's go and put a team in, or maybe start there. You know, how are you finding hiring now that thirty-seven thousand tech people have been laid off across the UK and the US in the last quarter? Is it easier to find talent, or is it is this? The, the fact that people have been laid off and there'll be talent available, a myth. So I think the best, like, you know, just saying about this one client now, we're trying to hire and it's really difficult to find someone suitable for this role and it's a really needed role. And fundamentally, it's easier, I would say easy, but easier to find broad generalists. But it's very hard to find deep experts and it's very hard to find both at the right price that's reasonable because the demand and supply are inflating the prices for marketers. And like I'm a marketer, and in a way, I want people to get paid more because that means I have a better life quality and more disposable income, which helps the economy. But I'm also, frustratingly, sometimes I have to hire people at high price points who are not as good or deliver as much value as the price that we pay because of supply and demand forces. And that's a very frustrating position to be in as a CMO when I'm building a team for a client. Um, so yeah, very. But generally, I'd say just it's like finding people is easy. Finding good people is hard. Finding exceptional talent is really difficult. And everyone wants to buy and hire exceptional talent because you can only have a small number of people in your team because they're so expensive and you need quality. And finding exceptional talent is hard, very difficult. It's the biggest problem, I'd say. It's hard at any time, isn't it? I just, it just sort of, it never gets easier. The people who are hoping it gets easier are like the people who are hoping that the cost of property will somehow plummet so that they can buy a house for half price. They just, it's just never going to happen. When you think about the, uh, you've got the team, you've put them in place. Now we need to put in some sort of tech stack. What tech stack are you enamored with at the moment? 
I don't have favorites. It's not advantageous for my clients if I have favorites because they I often inherit inherit some sort of monstrosity that I need to work with. <laughs> what do you hate then? I wouldn't say I hate anything because I think that would be very disrespectful towards the engineers who worked on that software without a UX or UI person to help them. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I really like working with engineers because they're very smart. So I'm not gonna. I don't. It's. it's I've never used anything. I'm like, oh, I hate this. But I have used, like, for example, I didn't enjoy using Pardot, which is part of the Salesforce suite. I felt that was very unintuitive. Um, so I didn't, didn't particularly enjoy that. But I wouldn't say I hate it. And to be honest, if someone has Salesforce, yeah, I'd still prefer to go with a different option like Marketo or something. But if they really needed a Salesforce integration for whatever reason because of the product, then, you know, it'd make do. I'm not really, I'm not as fussed about tools as many market. I just, it's the team. The team needs to use the tools they're very skilled at. Like, I don't want, to give a sniper an M16 and then say, like, best of luck, mate, because you're really good at the sniper gun. I'm sure you made the most out of this because that's not his tool of choice. That's not what he's skilled and trained on. So really, yeah. because the tools now are so complex, I'd rather have an average tool with someone who's really well skilled at it than have, a, like, a top-end draw tool that takes 12 months to upskill people and for them to get into it. And it's really tool adoption and getting marketers to use no tools is so difficult because there's so many and they're so complex and they're so unintuitive for the most part that yeah so but you know there's some stuff is always staple it's always the obvious choice like hubspot's always like a nice obvious choice that's easy out of the box quick to deploy good support infrastructure i have a a vast network of people who are good at deploying it as service vendors so I i know i can get up and running quickly on that same with like WordPress implementation experts and, and agencies that I've worked with. So, I mean, there's some things that it's easier for me. Yeah. But I do really try and think like, what does a client need and what is the best tool for that client rather than, yeah, let's try and take this and shove it in there even though it doesn't belong. Also, I love trying new tools because I'm always like, you know, I'm always curious to see if this is going to deliver a better result. So I'm always like adapting and changing. But I, I, I mean, it's complex now. I think I remember when a client was in it, we had like 26 tools it's a lot of tools, and that's just marketing. That doesn't include the rest of the tech stack you need to play with. So, you know, I, I really want to try and reduce complexity as much as possible because messing around with, like, custom APIs is a nightmare, and, like, everything breaks all the time, you know, when using Parabola or Zapier or Integromat or, you know, even bespoke scripts or Python script, and then you have to have someone who maintains and the person's on holiday and, and has a sick day or just can't be bothered or is overwhelmed. And so really out-of-the-box tools that went, integrate well is so critical to getting rapid deployment and speed is everything. And the technical complexity of, of the MarTech stack is very complex now. Yeah. And there's some stuff like Segment, which is like a no-brainer, very common. Like, you know, it's one of the best CDPs out there that does the job. And what uh, you said you enjoy playing with or looking at, maybe was a better, better term than new tools. What are you, have you seen anything recently that you thought that was good or that you think people might want to... <laughs> go and have a look at if it fits their circumstances? Personally, we've been looking at Demandbase, which is an account-based marketing platform. And I was looking at, yeah, sorry, it came to me, Terminus. So Terminus is better suited for like smaller, earlier stage businesses compared to Demandbase, which is the, like the bees knees 
of account-based marketing. And then there was one more, which was Integrate, which is also an interesting ABM solution provider. So, yeah, I was just looking at those and trying to figure out when is the right timing for the deployment and which one is most suited for the specific challenge I have with a specific client I was looking at for these solutions. So these are like just literally giving you three fresh ones from the last couple of weeks I was looking at. And so why might somebody use an account-based marketing tool? What problem is it solving for somebody? It kind of saves you time. So instead of like building a custom audience on LinkedIn, you identify the audience in the tool and you, you have different behavioral lead scoring and you can just deploy that directly into the custom audience in LinkedIn uh-huh. through the API integration rather than needing to like manually do that. So it's like examples of like little things, but lots of little things like that. But fundamentally, like looking at the scoring, behavioral scoring of those accounts and how are they behaving to try and understand when, like where they are in the buying journey that they're going through and, and also um, integrating intent data. So how you leverage intent data in the platform to display and to deploy on like programmatic display or paid social, which are like the two primary channels. And so really it's kind of, personalization power on an account-based level and, and you really want to try and get personalization to like as refined as possible like the more effective your personalization at scale is the higher the probability of you reducing the sales cycle increasing annual contract value acv building warmer higher quality more qualified leads because effectively it's engagement you're, you're gauging how interested this person is and you're prioritizing those who are most interested and engaged and there's a lot of different ways to overlay the data technographic profile intent data behavioral uh-huh. data firmographic data and as you start to stack it up but stacking it up is is not easy it's, it's, it's there's a cost and the question is is what's my alternative cost and when you think about the martech kit you know, is it worth it? And you go, well, how much is the Matic kit? 100K, 200K. Okay, how much is a full-time hire? 100K, 200K. All right, does a Matic kit do what one, two, three, four people can do? And if the answer is yes, then economically it's more sensible. And that's why the explosion in, in Martech is happening fundamentally. It's because the cost of doing it is more efficient. But also, a lot of marketing, especially in B2B, people aren't deploying the budget correctly. A lot of people are creating content, but they're not distributing it. And really, uh-huh. the majority of the marketing budget, when I go to a client, I'm like 50, 60, 70% minimum distribution. It's like paying for paid ads. It's paying for, for direct mail. It's not about producing as many articles on the blog. And it's not about crazy big PR campaigns for, for unknown niche SaaS solution vendor. So these tools just help increase the efficiency so I can focus more on quality rather than quantity. I'm, I, I'm trying not to go into too much technical detail here on the tools of integration. How many individuals would I need to want to have in my target audience for something like demand base or terminus? You know, do I need a thousand? Do I need five thousand? Yeah, it's not really necessarily about your your total addressable market or even serviceable market, etc. Tam Sam Som. It's more about the value of those accounts. Okay. How accessible are they? Because some accounts, like some businesses we talk to, I can't reach them through digital. So it does make it makes zero sense in this in ABM because I can't reach them digital. So what was the point? 
So it's like, can you reach them? And what is their value? Is their value high enough because the cost of the platform relative to the media and relative to the creative, proportionally, you need to have enough budget to justify these solutions, right? So you're really looking at probably one, one and a half mil annual marketing budget minimum, but minimum, I think, to warrant the cost of these tools. Terminus, I think maybe you can probably get away with less, probably less. Okay. I think it's about what is your solution like? Do you have a self-serve option? Is it only enterprise? Is it a lot of education? How establishes your brand? So the more mature you are, the more value you probably get out of these tools, which is kind of chicken and egg. And then also, I think the last consideration is how big is your sales team? And I'd say typically your sales team needs to be five to 10 people. But it's not, it's not as simple as that. It's like, how much search volume is that? Well, if there's a lot of search volume, then don't, don't do this. It's madness. If there's no search volume, then you really need to do this because you have, there's, no, there's no awareness. It's a new category. People don't know that they have a problem. You have to educate them. So you really have to get more personalized and more specific with that, especially if your annual contract value is high, about 50K. So I think it's like, I, just, I, I want to be weary of giving generic advice here. So this is, yeah, they're going to stop there, yeah. One of the things you were talking about there was where are people spending their budget? And you said people are just spending it in the wrong place. You know, they've got enough money, but they're writing more blog posts instead of spending more money distributing their content. Some of them don't have enough money. Um, okay. I'd say actually, I'd say, I'd say not having enough money is actually the number one problem. They don't have enough money because they don't have it or they're not putting enough into marketing. These people you go and see. They don't have enough money relative to their competitors' resources. So a lot of them, when we look at them and when they come to us, so like, so you've raised five mil. Yeah. Is that just marketing? No, no, no. Are you kidding? Of course not. Like that's engineering and that's customer success and that's everything else we need. Okay. So your marketing budget's okay, 500K. And then who are you competing with? Oh, competitor A and competitor B. And competitor A raised 35 mil compared to your five mil. And compared to be raised 56 mil compared to your 5 mil. Yeah, you know, we're really expecting you to be super creative here. Because being creative is a solution to generate that. Am I 30 million pound worth of creative? Like, I'm creative. I'm not that creative. I'm telling anyone who's listening. Sorry. <laughs> that would only work if the guys who raised 35 million also hire crap marketing people. Which, to be honest, we have seen. I, I did see the other day. We did, we did an analysis, and one of the ones who raised a lot of money, all of the display ads were on porn sites. You go, oh, nice. wow. So they have, like, it's like, what, what is a sex shop? What is it? It's like an enterprise-level cybersecurity tech solution. <laughs> it's not, like, if your buyer is on the porn, it's not that the your buyers aren't on the porn. They probably are, but it's like they're not going to buy your solution or, or investigate because that's not their mindset when they're on the porn site. <laughs> So I have to, I don't really want to cut this part of the podcast if I'm lowering the standard here. But this is crazy. You know, I've got this client, like 700 employees. They're paying me like a fair penny. I'm doing competitive analysis. I'm like, oh, you don't have to worry about this competitor. They're spanking so much of their money on porn sites because they're paying someone who doesn't know what they're doing. So like, actually, like, it's crazy. Absolutely mad. So yeah, yeah. A lot of them don't have money. And then the ones who have money are spanking it in the wrong place, in the wrong way. It's madness. So yeah, that happens a lot as well. And so... This is a generic question, but you know, if you look at what are the what are the common things that where you say, okay, you've got enough money, your product's not rubbish, so and you're in a marketplace where there seems to be demand. What mistakes are people making when you then move them from there to being successful? 
everything wrong hires wrong tech stack wrong message wrong audience it's like every single part of this 11 11 part supply chain of marketing every one of those i see can be off and it's actually quite hard to get this snake in a straight line because it kind of wiggles all the time and there's misalignment so i see i've experienced every single one of those going going wary there is no one category of the 11 part chain that is predominantly very obvious like i can come i have so many stories now i, I could i could talk until i'm blue in the face which i'd happily do because obviously i do that normally in my day-to-day i'm just thinking is it that you get hired or is is your enemy a poor performing head of marketing because you know they would have to be would they hire you or are they sort of d- delusional delusional and hiding from you? We have multiple enemies. Because we are on a partner model, some of the partners report directly to CMOs and marketing directors, and some of them are amazing. Some of them really shit hot. For, for me as a fractional CMO, I also do that. So it's like, because I run an agency consultancy and I'm a fractional CMO, then I have different enemies. For the fractional CMO, my enemy is, is essentially non-specialists people who are just not as expert. Like fundamentally, people bring me in because they need expertise that they don't have. It's that simple. I guess for there's agencies that are also quite crap that we take over, and there's agencies that are actually really good that we take over, which is really interesting. So like sometimes, like the other day, we took over from a really reputable agency, and they didn't get a result for the client, but it wasn't the agency's fault. And so that, yeah, because it's like those fundamental problems with the with our business. And do you think you'll be able to get a result for them? Yes, because we did something. We went deeper and highlighted something that one of the experts, vendors had missed out that was a really critical part in the foundations of the strategy. Right. But but whether or not they listen and allow (laughs) us to deploy it or whether or not we're actually right with our hypothesis two very big unknown variables there so whether or not i get a result i don't know i mean if i'm honest i'd probably say we get a result 20 to 30 percent of the time it's like you know i love it i love it i sent a message to someone the other day he said all the companies i've worked with are super successful i don't have any failures and now it's just like wow that smells like bullshit from a mile away i just like zero tolerance for that kind of crap it's so hard and like all the people i know who are super smart and capable if their failure rate is not higher than the success rate, they're not really working hard enough or doing enough. They're just not there. They've been in the, two, in the same company for far too long. Um, so like, I'd say, yeah, it's very hard to get a result. It really is. And uh, we do do our best to get it. But I mean, 20% is very, very generic and very across the board. But some clients, we managed to like kill it. Like one of our clients, we got like an eight and a half X ROI in three weeks. Crazy result. Amazing result, you know? But you know, it's not the agency. It's not us. It's like there's so many other variables: the brand and like the audience and awareness and the need of the product and innovation and features. So there's a lot of moving parts again in a business, right? Great technology, great product, great design, great user experience, great onboarding, great customer journey. That's why it's so hard. That's why so many businesses find it so difficult to to scale and become successful. And the unit economics, it's just fundamentally conversion rates, the reality of how much it costs to get a click and how well you monetize that click 
And that's like fundamentally, if you do that really, really well and you do a better competitors, you're going to be a category leader. Also, if you were the first in your category, you're likely to be a category leader. There's a lot of evidence that shows he who's first tends to win out. And that's because they are the first to build enough brand recognition around being the go-to. And that's been the same way for the last 80 years. I'm not saying this is new. Very, very hard to disrupt an incumbent. You have to be better. It's very hard because incumbents tend to be larger, more established, better reputation, and better, bigger, deeper pockets. So very, very hard for contenders and challengers to really move the needle. And there's a lot of variables now. I wish I was more optimistic. I'm sorry. I'm like, you know, just kind of like saying it as it is. I think people would be listening to this thinking, God, I thought my marketing wasn't very good. And I was listening to this because I thought this guy seemed to have all the answers. And then actually he says only 20 to 30% of the time are we able to give the client the result that they thought was going to be exceptional. And the rest of the time, you know, we're trying and we're trying and we're trying and we're trying, but we can't make magic happen for them. I literally had this conversation with a founder, hour in. I was very interested in the proposition of the space because I have a personal project that's very aligned. Told him about my project, told him about the space, was very open. And at the end of the call, he just said, shit, it just hit me. I realized I was looking for a silver bullet. And then I, I just said, like, I'm not a werewolf killer. That's not what I'm here for. You know, I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not in fairy tale land. You know, like if you have a plumbing problem, you call a plumber. If you have a digital marketing problem, you call me. I mean, I'm not, I can't, I can't materialize a new house for you. Like as a plumber, it just doesn't happen. I can't re-engineer your, your engineering department and your product department, your X and your I. And like, you know, if you, if you're underfunded and you don't have the infrastructure and your audience doesn't know who you are and you're, you're not really differentiated. And even when I ask you, are you differentiated? You give me a lukewarm answer. That's very enthusiastic but actually non-meaningful and that your customers don't care about. And actually, you know, I really, like when I now with clients that I work with, I just really look for like great products, products that I think really are, really do have something for them that differentiates them, that is unique. And that's such an important criteria for who I work with now. It used to be that way. I used to kind of go based on like how smart the people are or how much I enjoy the company culture. Now that's the basic criteria. And on top of that, it has to be exceptional. And otherwise, I just won't touch it because the amount of effort and energy, it's just not, yeah, it's just too hard. Aaron, what is it you know now that you wish you'd known earlier? Oh, so many things. Where does one start? Um, I think my media pain at the moment, because I'm like, I'm you know producing content on TikTok daily, producing content on LinkedIn daily, producing content on Twitter daily. And I really try and be like, you know, on dog food and especially as a marketer because a lot of marketers don't really market themselves. They're like too busy doing the work. And like everyone's too busy doing the work. And I get that. I'm not trying to put that down, but um, I really am trying to like show that I, I do it myself for myself and the business. And I wish what I had known earlier is how significant and how important consistent content on social is, on organic social and paid social. Like I just really, I think over the years, I underestimated the significance of compound value, compounding value with that effort. I just, I never... I only realized that once I really experienced the benefit, but by then that was already 15 years too late or 16 years too late. So I wish I could, I wish I could go back earlier on in my career and I would have started from day one. And by now I would have been Gary V. <laughs> Excellent. He, obviously, obviously smarter than me. He knew what he was doing. <laughs> and what about maybe some books? I don't know whether they'd be related to marketing or not, but books that you think people should read or inspire for it, for inspiration. Sure. I mean, right now, I'm just going to kind of give you 
one that I'm reading now, which I, I'm fond of, which is Differentiate or Die. And it's really a book around positioning and marketing. It's a classic, it's probably 20 years old. Yeah. And actually, funny enough, all the principles are still applicable and all the examples about all the business he talks about are still all applicable today. And I think there are a lot of examples that are very specific to the timeline. So I'm not sure if I would necessarily recommend it for like timely relevant businesses and what they're doing now. Like I think it's, it's, it's uh, for its era, all the principles of bang spec on like, for today. I think the other two would be hacking growth. And I think it's probably because growth hacking has a misconception around it and the hacking growth, which is a book that popularized the concept of growth hacking is actually a fantastic book and the methodology and, and, the, and the thinking around hack, growth hacking and hacking growth is, is really great. It's actually really good. So it's like a fantastic book. Actually, have a course about it on Skillshare. So if you like type in or in Greenberg Skillshare, you'll see the course and um, it's free. So you know, it's like save you a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, the book is way better than my Skillshare course, but you know, <laughs> the Skillshare course has me and the book doesn't have me. So you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta pick your mom, right? And then um, I'd say the third a book that I really, I mean, I've read, you know, I plow through books, but one book that I read recently that I really enjoyed was Good to Great. And it's been on my reading list for a long time, but Good to Great from Jim Collins is just really subtle, subtle shifts in perception and obvious things that actually have a big impact. Um, and some stuff is interesting. Some stuff is new that I didn't know about. Some stuff is reinforcing principles. And it's a classic as well. I and mean, it's not the newest book, but I'm just going through classics at the moment. Yeah, I reread it again over last Christmas and I came away thinking... People, 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 people. That exceptional talent thing and talent density, the way Netflix describes it. You know, if I look at clients who can just change the metabolic rate of their organization, it's better people. Because if you're not hiring exceptional people, you're taking a deliberate decision to reduce the average quality of your people every time you hire. Yes, the, the A players elevate the B players, C players and D players. It's impossible to have only eight players, which I think is what people get frustrated about. But you don't need to have like six magic junctions and you don't need to have the best of the best all the time. You just need to try and elevate that as much as you can. But fundamentally, it's just competitive forces and salaries and, you know, it's just very hard. There's like a shortage of talent out there and there's a lot of businesses competing for that talent. So it's not easy. All right. Thank you very much indeed for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.